1: To run you through the market action and what action we have seen over the last couple of days, I'm very pleased to say we've got a stacked show right over all over again on here on Bloomberg Surveillance, including Mark Chandler, Brown Brothers Harriman, Global Head of Currency Strategy. Kit Jukes also joining us of Soccer as General. Kit joining us from London. I want to begin with you, sir. An important note that came into my inbox from yourself this morning the addiction to low volatility, perhaps bigger than the addiction to low rates. Walk me through it, Kit.
2: It's just, it struck me that so that they're related, right? This this low interest rate regime we've been in since the financial crisis has, has pushed money looking for yield either to be taking low volatility strategies, which meant for a long time buying things that were low in volatility and that suffered if volatility picked up across markets. So corporate bonds, high yield, easy examples, high yielding currencies, and so on, and, and then clearly. You know, we have invented more and more derivatives that allow people to go short of volatility on a retail basis, or on a wider basis than just outside, you know, a few trading rooms, and 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 that's where some of the worst of the pain has been felt in in this crisis. And I, and I guess that's a you know, it's an evolution of the market away from um, away from what we saw in 2006, seven. Um, as, as, the, as the financial bubble grew when money was going into to be um, an addiction to low rates, but an addiction that, that, that came through in structured credit and through an addiction into the, um, into the property market. Yeah. This feels different in that sense.
1: Mark Chandler, at the moment, the uh, volatility almost isolated to equity. Do you see it bleeding through to FX, bleeding through to bonds? Because that's not happening in a material way yet. Not yet, and I think that partly it's what's happened is
3: that the dollar has gotten stronger and the yen's gotten stronger. It's primarily because people are unwinding these positions where they've used the dollar and the yen as a funding currency. But I'm not so sure that uh, that this is that this is a big crisis or anything. I think most retail investors are not really involved with these VIX plays. At the end of the day, I think that uh, this is mostly uh, Wall Street sort of staring at its navel and not really looking at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is essentially this: emerging markets with a was up about 33% last year. They're still up on the year now. The U.S. stock market, many people like myself, including some Fed officials, thought the stock market was elevated. And where are we now? Basically, where we were at the end of, say, early January. I think that this is... This is grossly exaggerated, the economic impact grossly exaggerated. Like I say, I think that there hasn't really been a spillover on economic issues.
1: Well, I have to say, Mark, I haven't heard an exaggeration on the economic issues, and I haven't heard an exaggeration from the bulk of the people I've spoken to either on the spillover effect. Let's be clear, though. This isn't an exaggeration when we talk about a key trade last year, which was short vol blowing up. The short vol trade has blown up. Now we can talk about what that means, the spillover effects, but I don't think it's an exaggeration to sit here and say that a lot of investors worldwide bet on an extended period of calm and that has ended. It's blown up in a significant way.
3: I'm not so sure that there's so many investors have been playing for this. For example, myself, what did I do? People like myself, we've been buying through our 401k equities. Is this a big scare for us? Are we playing low volatility as if it's going to last forever by being long stocks or being long some ETFs? Well,
1: being long credit, is it not an embedded low volatility trade? Being long EM, is that not an embedded low volatility trade? Isn't When you project for low volatility, aren't you expecting to have risk assets like EM and credit outperform? Most people input low volatility into their portfolios and expect credit, EM, and other risk assets to outperform.
3: Well, that's what I'm suggesting to you that despite this jump in VIX, the EM stocks are still up on the year. And what I did last year, you know, the Russell 1000 has Russell has a 1000 value index and a Russell 1000 growth index. Last year, as you would imagine, the growth index well outperformed the value. Yeah. Last week, when the stock market began selling off, the growth index held up better than the value index. So I don't see this as that's some kind of big unwind. Yeah.
0: I've been quiet, folks, because I'm staring at my navel. Uh, That's what we're doing on... (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm just staring there, John. So I'm uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning what to a you. day yesterday. We thanks to thanks say, for joining us. We need to say thank you to the Bloomberg surveillance team for heroic work from Friday over to Monday and getting smart conversation on, and we continue to drive that forward this morning. I hate to say this, Kit Jukes, but I featured your research note this morning. When you were not on, you'll get the royalty check. Uh, and, and within that was strong yen. How much stronger is strong yen? If we're for 109.110, can this be a news item for March or April? Well, I think the market is, you know, I, the, the yen is, is being...
2: Kept deliberately at least 10%, about 10% away from its fair value by the Bank of Japan's policies. That's what the ECB was doing to the euro a year ago, um, and they muttered tapering under their breath last May, and <laughs> we started moving. The Bank of Japan is desperate to not let that happen, and I think the market can now see that. It can see that the Japanese economy is recovering, and the yen won't be able to stay this week f- forever. And amid all this turmoil, um, I, I think that at the bare minimum, yeah. Yen is now in a lower range than it was, and okay. they're still going to have to work flat out to stop it appreciating 10%. That
0: was great. Kit didn't answer my question. Mark Chandler, let me see if you can. What is the level where Yen becomes stronger? Yen. Yeah, Kit talks about a new range and all the politics, but can Yen as the litmus paper – of the flow system can it really go to some dramatic yen strength
3: well here's what i suspect is that is to say that the, i think the japanese are willing to accept a stronger yen provided it takes place among a weaker dollar environment more broadly and it happens gradually and so i think that the, the fact i don't i don't think you see the japanese holding the yen down here but i think that the japanese are willing to accept a stronger yen partly to to help the deflect some protectionist sentiment coming from the United States. As you know, Japan has a large and growing current account surplus, which antagonizes some people in the administration.
1: So I I take issue with whether they are accepting a, a stronger yen. And the reason being, if they are going to accept a stronger yen, are they willing to accept higher yields? And it's quite clear to me that they're not. They're trying to cap the Japanese 10-year at just 10 basis points, Mark. And what we saw last week, as soon as there was any kind of volatility in rates, any kind of pickup in yields, guess what? The BOJ got aggressive again. Um, Let's just assume they are Willing to accept a stronger yen? Are they willing to accept high yields? I say so.
3: I, I agree with you that they uh, push back quickly when the yields hit their target, and that is to say that the Japanese. I think a lot of people are confused with Japanese policy. It's not just qualitative quantitative easing anymore, but it's this yield curve control, which yeah. requires them to buy fewer bonds. So I don't accept really the fact that they tapered last year because the balance sheet only expanded by 40 trillion yen instead of instead of 80 trillion yen. So, but my thinking is goes along these lines: is that the Japanese are willing to accept? I mean, look. What look. What's happened? The dollar strengthened, excuse me, the dollar weakened most of last year, the yen strengthened, they didn't protest that. And so I think that that's what I mean by willing to accept yeah. it, and especially if yeah. it's in the context of a wider move in the foreign exchange market. Kit
0: Jukes, before we let you run off to your uh, afternoon at Gen, he's working on a Sock Gen afternoon, uh, John. This is like, you know, 2 p.m. Are, you, are you throwing
1: shade at the French 2 p.m. again? 2 p.m. I, I feel kind like of. you are, Tom King. Uh, well, I, you know,
0: <laughs> he's an expert actually on French parades. We'll get him in touch with the president. <laughs> Kit Jukes, when, when I look at the yields coming in two basis points today, two year in two basis points, 10 year in two, 30 year bond three basis points as well. What does that signal to you, lower yields this morning?
2: I think it signals to me that once we've given the market a bit of a, a bit of a shock, that there are still buyers. There are still buyers out there for the fixed income market. That people have seen a bad inflation number, they've seen some volatility. You know, they, they've got themselves a little bit alarmed. But that at the end of the day, that there were buyers above 280 in ten-year notes. Um, there'll be buyers at 295, and there'll be a lot of buyers at 305. And, and I, I just think we might have to see the other side of three three percent at some point in 10s. I doubt okay. we'll say that till the end of the year.
0: Uh, 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 John Feris, folks,
1: my name. I'm, I'm flustered. Are you forgetting it now? John,
0: this is great when we have Kit Jukes and Mark Chandler on together. I, and
1: it's fantastic it's to great. get that real perspective and on they're what's, what's happening terms. in the FX market. Are they friends? I, well, that's a rumor. Okay, all right. <coughs> Kit Jukes, Société Générale. We've got to let you go, sir. Thank you very much for giving us your time.
0: Without question, our interview of the day, always timely with a former governor of the Bank of England, but never more so with a terrific news flow. Governor King, wonderful to speak to you again. And you, Tom. And, and I noticed, Governor, that Chair Yellen has been relegated in a fashion off the Fed as Aston Villa was relegated oh, out of the Premier oh, League.
4: Tom, you didn't. Two years the ago, are about to come back into the Premier League. Is um, that is that going to happen? I think Janet will enjoy her retirement.
0: Well, we will see, but we know for certain she's been rele- relegated. What was the pressure on you when you were relegated out of the Bank of England? How do you keep quiet the first weeks after your life changes?
4: I think the first thing you want to do when you leave the Bank of England, or indeed the Fed is to have a break and a holiday and get away from it all, and then gradually to adjust to a new lifestyle, but do not rush to decide what you want to do next. It took me nine months to decide what I wanted to do next.
1: Governor King, Jonathan here. Um, Some central bank governors, presidents have the luxury of taking some time to to settle in, find their way around the offices and uh, find their way around the various rooms down the hallway. Um, Jay Powell. Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, turns up at the Fed and the market starts falling out of bed. How should the chairman, the new chairman of the Federal Reserve, approach a situation like the one playing out before us?
4: Well, I think in the way that he has done, after all, he's known for several months that he would become chairman of the Fed, he's been at the Fed for several years, he knows his way around so he's been able to think through how he would handle the first week or few weeks and before long there'll be another meeting of the FOMC and he will be able to uh, put across his views then.
0: Uh, Governor, I'd like to address something you've been thinking a lot about, and folks, the history of this is back to McChesney Martin in 1951, where uh, the chairman of the Fed really went up against President Truman over the independence of a central bank. We take that for granted now, uh, Governor King, and you suggest we should not. How do we reassert independence in any central bank, and and as well a central bank in President Trump's Washington
4: So I think there are two different dimensions to this, one is monetary policy and the other is dealing with financial crises and in particular problems in the banking system. I think on the first, the important thing is to keep educating the public as a whole about the importance of price stability. It's very easy for people to take low inflation for granted. Indeed, the phrase price stability was once defined as when people stop talking about inflation. But it's very important that they're reminded of the dangers of going back to a world of high inflation. So, constantly explaining. The remit and the mandate of the central bank and why it needs to be a set of decisions taken by a group of people, not one person, but a group of people working together independently from day-to-day political pressures is very important. And I think that's a question of stating it as well as making sure that's what happens. The second one is, I think, more difficult, which is that in a financial crisis, it's inevitable that the central bank will be the source of liquidity to keep the economy functioning, but it should not be seen as providing that liquidity as a favor to the banks. There has to be a political agreement between Congress and the Fed or between parliaments and the central bank, as to the circumstances and the terms on which they will provide that liquidity. That is what was missing during the last crisis. Right. And it's what we need to put in place now.
0: You and I have talked about your acclaimed speech in Scotland, where you essentially lectured the United Kingdom toward Badgett and the idea that there has to be a way to do this, a modern Badgett, if you would. The late Alan Meltzer, of course, has talked about this with some emotion. Are we in a good place today, you know, to take the present crisis if we have the equity vol slip over into fixed income vol? Are we in a place where the proverbial discount window will be open?
4: No, we're not in a good place. Um one of the problems is that the response of Congress to the last crisis, understandably so, was to try to restrict the discretion of the Federal Reserve in providing liquidity to institutions and the market. And I think that that is the wrong direction in which to go. I think the Federal Reserve would have been better served by being given the freedom to exercise that discretion but under a set of conditions which Congress had laid down in advance rather than simply limiting or preventing the Fed from lending when it feels it's necessary to do so in a crisis.
1: So when the banks say they're very well capitalised and they're much, much stronger than they were before, what do you say back to that?
4: Well, the banks are certainly better capitalised, particularly in the United States and the United Kingdom. Less well so in Europe. So, we ought to be concerned about whether problems in the banking system elsewhere in the industrialized world could spill over to our banks and our economy. But it's not just the amount of equity capital which banks issue that that matter here. If people, for one reason or another, lose confidence in banks or simply do not know whether banks will be able to meet their liabilities, then the natural thing is for people who provide short-term credit to banks, whether they're retail depositors or wholesale depositors like hedge funds, they may run for the exit. And we don't have a system that will cope with uh, a run on the banking system short of the Fed actually throwing large amounts of money at it. And as I say, Congress has been limiting the ability of the Fed to do that.
1: Well, the argument that's being perpetuated by the banks, obviously, in the United States and by others in Washington, D.C. as well, is that the regulatory rules post-crisis, the capital rules, have become a burden and that ultimately it's stopped lending, that for some reason these banks would have been able to lend a whole lot more if they didn't have these rules on them and that business would be a whole lot better. That's the argument coming from this administration as well to some extent. Do you subscribe to that argument? Because I sense from listening to you now you don't.
4: Well, I have a sympathy with one part of the argument. The regulatory system has become absurdly complex. If you have a system that can only be described in tens of thousands of pages, there is something really wrong with it. And I think the attempt to put in place so much detail in the regulation is an attempt to prevent the last crisis happening. What we need is something much simpler, much broader brush, which would both ensure that the leverage of the banks is capped and ensure that we have a method for dealing with bank runs if they were to occur. What we don't want is a system of banking in which the people who determine banking decisions are compliance officers.
0: But then critically with this, what your comments, Governor King, are extraordinary. They're, they're very, very timely and very, very important. What does the quote unquote next crisis look like to Governor King if it's not the last crisis?
4: Well, I don't want to speculate on what the next crisis will look like. And we have no idea Agreed. when it will come. Yes, But the areas of a weakness in the current system, are really focused on the amount of debt that exists, not just in the US and UK, but really across the world as a whole. Uh, Debt in the private sector in the world relative to GDP is higher now than it was in 2007. And of course, public debt is even higher still. So what one might fear would be that if there were defaults, not very many, a few defaults were people then revise their view about the value of assets on the balance sheets of financial institutions and intermediaries around the world, then you would find that not only would the value of the assets go down, but so would the value of the equity cushion available to absorb losses. And that's the kind of thing that can induce... Financial panic. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying it will happen. It may never happen, but that is the the area of weakness that I would look to at present.
0: This is incredibly important comments from Mervyn King, folks, of course, at New York University, the former governor of the Bank of England. Why do you bring in a really esteemed guest from Washington?
5: Ah, Mr. William Hoagland. Yes, he is the Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center, and that really just uh, scratches the surface of uh, Mr. Hoagland's uh, career in Washington and service to the country. Formerly staff member, director of the Senate Budget Committee, reporting to uh, former U.S. Senator Pete Domenici, uh, chairman, ranking member, and he's really an expert when all things uh, related to Washington and the government, and he's also uh, a, a former attendee of the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, so um, he knows a thing or two about the Jones Act. Uh, Mr. Hoagland, thank you very much uh, for, for being with us. Uh, I just leave it open to you to, to give us your reaction to the back and forth, the slanging match that seems to be taking place on a regular basis in Washington. Uh, do you believe that the people in Washington, uh, the politicians, do they recognize that every time they do this, the, the level of esteem sinks
6: lower? It can't get much lower than it already is. I think when you look at the ratings out there in terms of Congress, they are at one of the lowest rates they've ever been in terms of recording of that particular statistic. So, uh, do they understand it? I, I, you would think they would understand it. I think you understand. I think they now understand that uh, the last government shutdown that we went through a few weeks ago here for three days. Is something they do not want to go through again, and I think you're hearing that both from the Democrats uh, and the Republicans, and I didn't hear it from the President yesterday, unfortunately, but uh, that definitely is uh, uh, an understanding that we don't want to shut down government. The difficulty here is, of course, can they come to some sort of an agreement? We're almost five five months into the current year and we still haven't fixed and set what our spending should be for the current year and continue to operate under these things called continuing resolutions, which is not a way to run government at all. Um, and, And quite frankly, interestingly enough, uh, come Monday, uh, under the law, the president is to submit his budget for the fiscal year that begins this October. So we haven't even finished up the current year, and we're already starting to get into next year's uh, budget process. So it, it's a, uh, it's rather disappointing and uh, and and despairing uh, on uh, on the way our government is working today. Well, in
5: your 33 years of federal government service, uh, what have is there something that you could impart to the various participants in this drama that th- would lead us, maybe not to an agreement or some kind of uh, uh, compromise, but some kind of amicable divorce? I mean, you know, like have to actually maybe share the same kitchen, but still be divorced.
6: Well, it would be nice, first of all, if they would work five days a week instead of uh, basically three days, if they would uh, basically stay in town like everybody else does, work a 40-hour work week at a minimum, and uh, be here throughout and get to know one another and get to know them on an individual level, Democrats and Republicans. It's just something that we, uh, we really uh, have lost that kind of connection And getting to know the other person, know the other person's position, understand that we have differences of opinion. Yeah. Uh, uh, It might be helpful, but more importantly, it just seems to me that uh, what we have to understand you cannot do, you cannot govern in a country that's as large as the United States with as many diverse views as we have out here right. in, a, in a partisan way. It has to be a bipartisan, no surprise coming from the bipartisan policy center that I would say that the way you get things done is you, you compromise. Uh, I think that's right. what Madison had in mind, and uh, uh, or we just don't see the compromise well, up there.
0: In the time that we've got left, too short a time, uh, Mr. Holden, we'll, we'll do a longer bout soon. Mr. Madison did not know a trillion-dollar deficit. What does the phrase a trillion-dollar deficit mean to William Hoagland?
6: Uh, It's unbelievable. It's something that I would never have expected we would ever see. It is something that creates a high level of debt that is going to be a a, a pressure on future generations. It is a tax on future generations, uh, which will lower the standard of living in the future. That's what a trillion-dollar deficit means to me today.
0: Al, uh, thank you so much. William Hogan, way too short today, uh, uh, joining us. He served in the Madison in, in uh, administration with Albert Gallatin uh, a few years ago. Bill Hogan, a legend in Washington uh, with his work, including with a senator from Tennessee, Mr. Frist, uh, and he is with the Bipartisan Policy Center. I'd like to tell you, this is the most important interview of the day, but of course, I can't say that. And Mr. Warther won't hang up the phone because Mervyn King was on, and that's an important interview. But everybody at Bloomberg Surveillance are huge. See, what do we have a team? Is it like we're up to forty-two people? Is it on the team now? Forty-two. I, mean? I think it's forty-two. Isn't that Jackie Robinson's number? That's just number? the people that open the door for me and get me lunch. In that forty-two, I think and hold 42. the umbrella. Hold the umbrella. Yes, very good. Anyways, they know I've been a complete pain for forty-eight hours saying get Stuart Wartheron joining us now from BMP Paribas and someone who writes obtusely professional. Derivative Greek symbol-lettered articles on volatility is the authority, Mr. Weather Stuart, thank you for taking your time away from BMP Paribas duties. What is the single thing you're writing this morning about as you observe the VIX index?
7: Tom, thank you very much for having me on. A pleasure to be here and for the kind introduction. We put out a note this morning, and I really I want to focus on the fact that from here, volatility is likely biased lower rather than higher on a technical basis. And when talking about the VIX complex, I, I think there's been some misunderstanding in the market uh, as far as what does that lead
0: driving. misunderstanding?
7: You know, I, I think people are looking at the VIX ETP products, uh, the headlines around those uh, because they're you know highly observable and well known and uh, observable in, in financial press. But really, the the dislocation is in the VIX spot index which is really a reflection of the cost of uh, S&P options on a 30-day maturity. So it's the S&P options themselves in the front rather than the VIX futures which drive these products that, where we see the real trigger of the dislocation and see the current opportunity in the market. The,
0: the, the spot market, the present market, has the carnage of the Credit Suisse product, the Nomura product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What do the future pricings of the VIX tell you?
7: So we see that at the the cash fix is trading above the future levels. The curve is inverted, and so really, what the market's telling you is that there's volatility now, but we're expecting a reversion in the future. Okay. And you know, I, I think the positioning has changed dramatically. Um, as I said when we had that discussion yesterday mm-hmm. morning on your show, the you know there were large inflows into uh, exchange-traded products that were short volatility on Friday. Those uh, essentially those flows of those positions were unwound, and now we actually see that the market is very long VIX. So if anything, it's suggesting that the market is actually well hedged at this point. Um, I would say as far as flows that we've seen, um, they've been primarily unwinding of hedges, which I think is really constructive, and it seems that the market is now At least anticipating that the worst is over.
0: Shout out to my colleague, Carl Rickadana. We make jokes about aerospace that we end up looking at the Greek letter theta, which is the time function. Stuart Warther, you look at alpha, beta, gamma, the acceleration of all these trends, the other Greek soup, Vega, etc. If I look at theta out the x-axis, there's a belief that if you have a stochastic spike in VIX and it come back down, it dampens out over days, weeks, or even months. Do you have a sense of when VIX dampens back to normal? Is it six weeks out? Is it this Friday? When would that be?
7: So I think this is an interesting question because what we saw in 2017 was any VIX spike was immediately followed by a reversion back to extremely low levels. We saw systematic volatility sellers that looked at this market, which was auto-realizing at low levels and would sell into any of those rallies. Now I think it's different. We're going to see a reversion back to a lower level, um, but it's not going to happen as quickly because I I think a number of market participants have now – you know, experience what we would call a VAR shock in the sense that right. worst case scenario happened, you don't go right back in after that, um, if you were at least in that positioning before.
0: Okay. Now, this is the critical point, folks. And Stuart, I don't want to get you in trouble with your general counsel. So if you don't want to answer it, fine. What you just heard there, folks, is the pro-analysis that this time is different. There's been the VAR value at risk shock where the legal types are going to say, no, you can't do that. You can't reinstitute those habits that led to the spike-ups, down, fine. How does that translate over to other asset classes away from equity dynamics? Are the are the police going to say we had a VAR shock in equities, so we're going to change our behavior in the hedging and derivative structure of fixed income markets, foreign exchange, and foreign exchange markets as well?
6: So
7: this is really one of the interesting parts about the sellout that we saw, which was that you know, although Treasuries and, you know, rates broadly have been selling off over the last uh, few weeks, the, uh, you know, the market moves in equities were enormously larger um, in relative magnitude terms versus other asset classes. Um, And one of the things that we had noted was putting pressure on the S&P vol complex last year was really selling from other types of investors, such as fixed income investors selling equity volatility, uh, realizing that it it potentially was a better risk reward at the time um, than selling fixed income volatility. And same thing with FX for that matter. So, um, you know, I I think there was a proliferation of cross-asset volatility trading last year that might not uh, return to normal as investors look back to their own asset classes and pe- play it a little closer to home from here.
0: What will you do here? What will you? What, what is the trade recommendation as we go from 10 to 50, 4.3 standard deviation move back down to under two standard deviations, 24.69 on the VIX? What is the to-do list for Stuart Warther?
7: So we actually looked into a, a few different scenarios. Um, and if we look at history and use that as a guide, we find that when the S&P declines by you know, over, say, 3% in a, in a current week, then it actually tends to or has historically bounced back in the following week. However, when an event like Monday happens over the preceding mo- or the, the following month, it, it, it's really split 50-50 as far as what the spot market does, what the price of, of stocks do. Um, you know, I, I think... The more obvious implementation or, or the more obvious answer to this is, you know, it, it seems that because of the the unwind in some of the volatility space, that we would see VIX futures biased to the downside and that we would see vol under pressure as opposed to the stock market rallying back to its prior highs.
5: Mm-hmm.
7: Fox you chuck. Know, yeah.
5: No, go sure. ahead. Go ahead, Stuart.
7: No, I I I would say that I think this is the the million-dollar question and the thing that a lot of our institutional investors are probably grappling right now, which is, does vol normalize or does the spot market go back to where it was?
0: Or even, Pim, does vol normalize or leak over to other asset classes? Most of our interviews are saying, no, that will not happen. Well, you want let, to jump in let, here? Yeah. Well, let me. Do you me, have a let, Greek let, let, letter uh, you'd like to? Do you want to talk about n- mu?
5: No, I was going to do kurtosis, but I'm not going. No, volatility of volatility. Yeah. Stuart, Stuart, help me here just to simplify this. Um, is it possible that what happens is the same thing that happens all the time? You have institutions or smart investors who use a product to hedge a position, and then that hedge looks profitable. And then they turn that hedge into something that is designed to actually pay them money. Is is that what happened?
7: Yeah, I, I would I would answer it this way, which is that volatility tends to trade at a premium because you know generally there are it is a kurtotic asset which involves a number of spikes. Mm-hmm. Generally, people are compensa- thus have to be compensated for selling options, um, but. You know, as far as the use of options, I think there are a number of uses, both for hedging and for, um, you know, for instance, premium at risk only long investing as well, such as call replacement. So um, the interesting market change, though, and this, I, I think this someone answers your question, has been with yields extremely low, we're in an environment where people are seeking yield when volatility is low and yields are low then selling options creates another form of yield enhancement, either through right. underwriting or call overwriting it. Now, um, those strategies have worked extremely well. So the fact that you know, we have a one or you know, few-day market move to the downside doesn't you know, um, nullify gains in those types of strategies that have occurred over the past number of years that have been extremely yeah. profitable, but I think it makes people more cautious okay. about them going forward.
0: Thank you so much, Stuart Warther. Greatly appreciate time out from your BMP Paribas Day. Maybe we look forward to speaking to you later this week or into next week. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen.